Hi all, uh, welcome to Anime Echoes. So we'll be continuing on with the seventh volume of Bakano. So Tim's helping Adele get up. She's like on the ground, she just got cut. Now Tim's gonna help her up. And Adele asks if she's useless. So now we can see that that insecurity of her is really like rising to the top. Vino stopped her spear with two fingers and she also lost. So she's kind of at an all time low right now. Now Tim supports her. But then Dallas gets in the way and he's seething and happy that he has a chance to take them out. He's been waiting for this. Tim threatened to hurt Eve and now we can finally get back at them both. So he goes to attack them with like a rusty knife. But then Adele attacks him with a spear skewering him. Dallas still says that things will work out for him. And we find out that he had like explosives that were stolen from the train. Like from the... um. Uh, from Jacuzzi and the guys, so he stole their explosions. Um, but those explosions were the same explosions that Jacuzzi's gang stole from the um, Flying Pussyfoot. Um, so yeah, the lights, the lights start like flickering away, and then we cut away. So this was an interesting scene. I like that we got to see um, kind of Adele really kind of showcasing her insecurities about feeling useless. Also, seeing Dallas kind of take his um, take this opportunity in stride to kind of get some little revenge was um, very in character for him. Also, it was really nice seeing Adele just kind of attack and skewer him. Like, it, in that moment, we might think, well, they're both really hurt and they might not be able to beat him, but this is Dallas we're talking about. Like, Adele can kick his ass just real quick, real easy. Now, we jump to Christopher and Venus fight again, and they're talking about random stuff at the start, but we get into why Christopher likes nature. He believes his existence to be unnatural, or his birth to be unnatural. So he's trying to merge with nature by loving it. And this is what um, Vino says about him. And Christopher says, you nailed it. So Vino has a pretty accurate assessment for why Christopher's doing what he's doing. He believes his existence to be unnatural and his birth to be unnatural. So he wants to kind of merge with something that's natural, which is nature. Vina asks Chane to back down, but as he does this, Lisa, sorry, not Lisa, Lisa sends six chakrams. Now, to the disbelief of both of Claire's enemies, so to the disbelief of Lisa and to Christopher, Claire catches them and then throws them back at Christopher, and then he immediately has his arm on Christopher's throat. Check, mate. So, turns out Vina was actually holding back. Because he wanted to fight together more with Chane, but now that she's gone, you know, he asked her to leave, it's time to wrap things up. So, at this moment, I was kind of like, man, I really wanted, um, like, Vina to be a bit more on the back foot, you know? Like, I didn't want him to be, like, holding, like, I wanted to him, I wanted him to be kind of just pushed a bit more. Um, but at the same time, this is very in character for him as well. Because, like, him just, like, he's just too strong. And there's nothing about Christopher that implied that he could potentially be on, like, Vino or Claire's level. Um, yeah, there's really nothing that implies that. So, I guess this does make, like, a lot of sense. But I'm really looking forward to the time where Claire really has to, like, try. Like, really has to try, like, really hard. And he's thinking, shit, like, maybe I'm not the center of, like, the universe. Um, that's just something I'm really looking forward to. Even though I really like Claire, um, I just want to see him kind of experience that kind of tension in him, within himself. So, now continuing on, Christopher admits that God might love you. So he's saying this to Vina. Um, and he says this, and Vina gets kind of mad because, once again, this is kind of like an implication to Vina that Christopher thinks that the reason why Vina got so strong is because God loves him. Right? Like, it implies that his strength came from some miracle or some god. And we know that v Vino, or Claire, hates that idea. He loves the idea that he put in all of the effort to become who he is. So Vino says that there is kind of like a god within him. But every act he does, every effort he puts in is a, like a ritual to summon that god. And he never skips that ritual. And that's why he's so strong. Because he put in the effort. And... Christopher says, like, fair enough. And he kind of, like, admits defeat in this moment because he gets, like, slammed into the wall and he loses consciousness. 
And we get a really cool image of um, Claire kind of like holding Christopher's throat and like just holding him up. It's really good. Um, it shows just how like dominant Claire is in this situation. Um, and yeah, Claire's kind of final line is, you know, don't worry. Compared, compared to me, you're closer to nature. So Claire's like, I'm the world. Yeah, to be honest, you're much closer to just nature. Um, and yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate representation of how the fight went down. Claire dominated for the most part. Yeah, he got some good hits in though. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a really good fight. I really enjoyed this because um, like they were really kind of getting into like Christopher's character and his um relationship with nature and what that actually means for him and how he feels like he's unnatural and all of that was kind of relayed to us through like Vina's dialogue and them kind of talking back and forth with it with each other. Um, and like I said before in um like previous episodes, they are very similar characters in some ways. Um, like Christopher, all of his personality is um like focused on this idea of like what it is to be like a natural kind of person and he's like contending with that idea while um Vina is always contending with this idea of um being like the center but then also working for the fact that he is the center like he can't just be the center of like the universe or the center of the world he um like he kind of has to also make things happen through effort which almost seems like some sort of like contradiction like um, but, like, that's kind of the point, I think. Like, things weren't given to him. Yeah, he might be the center within his eyes, but he worked every bit as hard in order to make those things happen. It's almost like, um, well, I think he says it pretty accurately, right? Like, there is a God with, within himself because he is the center. Um, but he has to do the ritual over and over again in order to kind of keep that God in alignment so it's not like denying this idea that he is the center it's like this is what i need to perform to kind of maintain that to maintain being like the center of everything um so yeah i thought the fight was really really good because we had all these different ideas kind of um percolating and we're going through them as the fight was happening and also the action was really fun as well and just as vino said it was really interesting or not interesting but like really entertaining to see him and Chane um, actually kind of fight together. Because I don't think we've really seen that. Um, so like seeing them kind of you know fight as a duo. Fight as um, two people kind of protecting each other. Though it's pretty clear that you know Chane. Like Claire's a lot stronger than Chane. Like we, we know that for a fact. Um, so you know even though Chane has moments where he d- she does kind of protect him. For the most part he's a-okay. Um, but yeah that was, that was a good fight. I enjoyed that. Now, after this scene, we check up on Firo and Ennis, and more specifically, Tim and Adele. So, this is right after the explosion that happened. You know, Dallas had those explosives, and he lit himself up, and he went boom, right? So, he's exploded. And, turns out, Tim was fairly okay. And the second we hear that, we know that Adele has shielded her from the explosion. I mean, shielded him from the explosion, and she was badly burnt. Now... Once again, you know, she wanted to be useful. She wanted to actually have some sort of, um, like, kind of value. She wanted to show the value that she offers. Now, Adele has a foot in both Lamia and Lava, but um, it's not entirely clear why she kind of defended, not defended, sorry, like, like kind of saved Tim. Like, did she feel a bond with Tim, or was it to make, like, her insecurities go away? Just kind of based on what we've seen, Tim and Adele don't really have that kind of close relationship even though they work together um i think it's more how do i say this like um i think it's probably i think there's more evidence that adele did this to kind of um make herself feel better to get her insecurities away and to get a and get rid of any anxiety of like not being useful to the group right not being useful to lamia or lava i think that's why she really shielded that um it was a way to like prove herself now dallas is a model even though he's blown to bits, he comes back up completely, right? He reforms, all of his flesh comes together, all of his blood comes together, he's now one. And he's now walking to Tim, and he's taunting him. And Tim's saying, like, why are you trying to attack us? Like, if you really care about Eve, why not just go find Eve? And Dallas says, like, uh, I actually couldn't think of any other way to solve this problem other than killing you guys. So... He's actually, like, the worst. Like, Dallas is the worst. Like, he can't think of any... Like, like he says he wants to save Eve. And I think there is something genuine there. 
but like he just twists it and he he loses the plot like he loses like what he's supposed to actually even do and you can tell that like his killing instincts or his anger like he can't think clearly once something happens that pisses him off and that's kind of like the worst thing about him and i think tim gets it pretty dead on when he's like really like that's like that's what's driving you like you just hate us that much and yeah that's it that's what's driving him and anyway um through that sheer hatred dallas proceeds to grab the arms of adele and tim and proceeds to jump out right he wants to just kill them um and yeah that's how it ends now we move back to christopher who's now laying on the floor and she is like moving towards him and he sees him and he sees that he's unconscious and Vino's still there as well so chi looks to face Vino, right he looks like he's gonna like he's like oh well this guy's a threat like i need to actually kind of get my arms out get those claws that he uses out he's like this is gonna be a fight but Vino says it's enough look we fought it's enough and Vino says that if this was a job he would have killed them all but you know like since you guys are people who actually work for chane's old man since you are people who actually work for huey i can't just kill all you guys you know there's other things i need to worry about um i don't know if that would make things worse for chane like he's thinking about chane essentially and chi finally in this moment figures out that chane is huey's daughter they have the same golden eyes and then he figures out that claire is vino at that moment as well and he walks off thinking about how he can defeat Vino next time. So I am really interested in this. So like any any character that wants to kind of fight Vino or has some sort of hatred towards Claire, I'm very all for because I just like I like I like seeing like Claire come out on top, but I also want him to also kind of like struggle. So like if I see or if I get even a hint of another character going to perhaps cause problems for him, I also get kind of excited because I'm like, okay, I know Claire will probably come out of it in a good way, but it's just like, it's just interesting. Like, I just want to see him also get like pinned down a bit and struggle. So yeah, I'm keen to see if that actually becomes something. Like if um, Chi kind of noticing Vino and being like, oh, this guy, I need to look out for this guy. If that actually ends up resulting in something in the future. Now, once Claire's enemies are gone, they're out of sight. Claire pa- pays the highest compliment we have seen him ever give. If Christopher had a decent weapon and he used it well, then he might have broke out in cold sweat at least. Now this was great. Like I really like this line because what this means is perhaps in the future, Christopher and him might actually end up having a really, really good fight where Christopher is actually using like a weapon that he can use well and they're actually fighting on like a really, you know, perhaps on par. I mean, that might be pushing it a lot because it is clear we're talking about and it's clear that, like, even within, within this fight, it's probably not just the weapon that was holding Christopher back. Like, probably his fighting skills are not as good as um Claire's either. But that being said, the fact that it would make Claire break out in cold sweat, I mean, that's a pretty big thing. Like, we've never seen Claire break out in sweat, like, whatsoever. Like, at all. So, I think this is huge. And I'm really hoping that this turns into something um in the future. Um, but yeah, so that was a really great, like, great line to um, kind of end this little conflict, I think. Now to the next scene. So we jump over to, um, so Dallas just exploded. I mean, no, not Dallas just exploded himself. Um, Dallas, um, he jumped out of the, like, the window and was holding on to Tim and Adele. But turns out um, Tick is standing behind Dallas, who was holding on to Tim and Adele. And Tim had actually... Um, like, he, Tim had thought that, well, this is the end of my life. So he actually reserved himself to the idea that this is going to be the end. But Tick says to stop and to leave his little brother. So it turns out, Tick knew who Tok was back at Millionaire's Row. He recognized him immediately. But because he saw that Tok was now Tim, he figured he just wanted to forget the past. So this is very intuitive of Tick. Like, he figured it out very quickly just by seeing him. And obviously with Tick, he doesn't really give anything away. Like his eyes are always um, closed. He's always doing that typical smile. And when we see something happen that's um, very out of character for Tick, it's generally when his like smile kind of goes away. Um, just like a little, like maybe he like frowns a bit or something, you know, to show that he's being serious. 
Um, so yeah, obviously, like it's kind of hard to like pick up on the fact that Chick actually knew. He very much kept it to himself, and he kept it to himself because he made that um, like he really just understood. Oh yeah, like Tuck is now gone by Tim. Probably doesn't care about the past. And Tim basically agrees, um, but says it in like a more confrontational way because he's like, like you knew, and um, but I really care, right? Like Tim cares deep down. Now, Tick keeps stabbing Dallas using blades. He's just stabbing him over and over and over and over. And he's learned to cut in places that makes the victim's muscles like hard to move. Like they can't really get out. They become kind of limp and they can't really do anything. So bit by bit, like Dallas was going limp and um, he was unable to move. Now Tick goes and speaks to Dallas and he tells him his name and that Dallas should resent him more than anyone else. And if he ever goes after Tim again, then he knows where Eve lives. Now seeing the fury in Dallas's eyes, Tick is satisfied. Like he knows that he got um, Dallas to go after him. Dallas doesn't give a shit about Tim anymore. Dallas doesn't give a shit about Adele anymore. Dallas's enemy, or his number one enemy now, is Tick because he is threatening Eve, and he's basically saying like, "I am the one who's gonna go after this person and kill them." And Tick knows. Eve and I don't think Tick would even do that to be honest because Eve um, has a good relationship with um, Luck and Luck's Tick's boss so you know like that wouldn't really happen but telling that to Dallas is perfect right it's perfect to get Tim kind of out of his mind Um, and you know getting Tim and Adele out of Dallas's mind would probably make Dallas far more willing to actually focus on the important thing which is keeping his sister alive or meeting with his sister um, you know, the thing, like, he's always trying to, like, get, he's always mad um, if people are trying to kill his sister, and yet the solution he always goes to is to try to kill those people, even though he could have, like, saved his sister at, like, many opportunities. So, maybe now, Dallas can actually focus on helping Eve in some capacity. Like, that would be good to see him. Like, maybe Dallas can kind of redeem himself. Um, but, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be that... Uh, like I don't, I don't like Dallas. Like that should be pretty, pretty obvious by now, because um, you know he kind of sucks, right? But yeah, I think this could be a good thing for Dallas. Maybe or maybe he'll get lost in the hatred again and just go after Tick. So we'll have to see how that turns out. Yeah, the um. So the last tidbit that we get is that Tick apologizes for using family bonds again, and what he means by that is so Tick is always kind of um like he's the torturer, right? And because of that, he has to kind of leverage, like, the family bonds that the victims has. You know, I'll, you know, we'll go kill this person if you don't tell us the truth. You know, or how much would you do for your family? And then he starts, like, cutting them up. So it seems like he he does it consistently. um, But he also needs, or feels the need to kind of apologize for what he's actually doing. Now, Eve wants to go in, but Fang stops her. And a dot comes like crashing down and this is probably Dallas after um they kind of pushed him out of the building and Eve looks on. In the next scene we move back to Christopher so Chi's kind of coming down with him and he notices that Adele and Tim have gotten beaten so they've basically lost. Uh, then he asks the twins for help so turns out one of them were actually here and his name was Sham and he was the waiter um, so that was kind of a big surprise. I didn't expect for one of the twins to actually be in the um, in the location. I expected the twins to always kind of just be like in the background, pop up, pop out kind of thing. I just didn't think that they would actually be at the corporation. So I thought this was like a pretty good kind of reveal. Um, we also get the name of like the other twin and his name is Hilton. So now we have the names of the twins as well. Um, so that's pretty good. Um, anyways, their group kind of just leaves. Um, now Vina comes along and asks about Dallas. Um, obviously it was his job to kind of get Dallas and Tick says that he went down first and that's it. So I thought that was a pretty good line from Tick. He really did go down first. He went crashing down and probably exploded into a pool of guts and blood. So that was a pretty nice line. Um, we also cut to Fira and Ennis in the elevator and Ennis is worrying about her new siblings, right? About Christopher all these other, you know, pseudo-homunculuses, and Fira says to not worry about them, and, you know, kind of coming to grip with herself, she says that she has two wonderful brothers, 
Shez and Firo. So that was kind of hard to read. I feel really bad for Firo that he's, you know, in the brother kind of, um, like she thinks of him as his brother. Um, I thought that was pretty rough for him. Um, I'm really hoping he kind of gets out of that perspective um, and actually kind of becomes like a potential love interest. That would be good to see. I was kind of hoping that towards the end of this novel that Ennis would kind of come around and be like, oh, yeah, like fear is actually more than that to me. But um, for now, I guess he's still in the brother zone. So not good, but uh, I guess she's kind of getting in touch with um, the idea that fear is like someone like super special to her. So this might be considered kind of a, I don't know, like a push forward in their little, um, you know, their little... Uh, their relationship but for now it still does sound kind of rough so yeah anyway that was a good scene um feel bad for Firo but yeah good scene now we jump over to China and Vino and they're together and so Vino slash Claire he's thinking about Huey LaFerrey and Nebula and you know their dynamic and what's going on and he feels like he's on the outside and he finds that really frustrating um, I thought this was a really good way to use his character. Like, the idea of him being on the outside would be kind of annoying to him because he's under the impression that the world revolves around him. So for him to actually be on the outside of something that he actually cares about, well, it's kind of proof that, you know, other people have stuff that's going on that doesn't include him. So now he's going to kind of force his way into that world. Um, so he says, next time, I'm going to pay Huey a visit who we know is in a prison, a pre an impregnable one as well. So that's going to be really interesting to see, to see Claire kind of pop up into a prison that no one can break into. So that would be really good. Um, and then he says something interesting. He says that he's forgetting something important. And then China shakes her head looking mystified. I'm not sure what he's talking about. I don't know what he forgot. Uh, maybe it was mentioned before. I just can't remember. But maybe this is something that will pay off in the future. Honestly, I got no idea. But yeah, I thought this was a good scene as well. It makes me excited to see, um, I don't know, if there's like a, the, like the prison arc that's coming up. Like, Claire's probably going to be in it, um, which is good. Um, it's always good to see Claire. Um, and yeah, I just really did like how like the author used his character. Like, the idea that him being outside of the main action or outside of the focus would actually be grading to him. I thought that was really good. Now we jump over to Jacuzzi and his gang. And they hear a voice. You know, like echoing in the background. And the, the voice says that they're more easygoing than Tick, which is, I think it's pretty easygoing. Because um, Tick is super easygoing. I wouldn't consider Jacuzzi easygoing. He tends to be freaking out about everything. Uh, but, well, never mind, he says. Your real business starts now. So they look back, the elevator do door closes, and a long time begins to pass. And turns out, I think it's Ronnie? We jump back to Tick and Tim, and Tick and Maria are helping up Tim. Maria doesn't know that they're related, but she learns pretty quickly. And Tim says he's going to stick to what he's been doing all this time. That he'll be working for Huey, even if he thinks that he might be using him. That he'll slash through his fate. Um, and Tick says that there's such a thing as, like, there isn't really such a thing as being, like, faded to being used by somebody else. Like, no matter how hard you try, you can't do something that's never really existed. And it's an interesting way to say it, but I think what he's trying to actually say is that Tim chose to help Huey and that he wasn't actually manipulated or that there was something real that actually made him do that in the first place. Um, that there's probably something real that he saw and that he made that choice on his own, which shows, like, his own agency. That he's not just, I don't know, like, tied in this massive spider's web and that he's you know, completely faded to always be kind of used and to never really find a place or anything like that. I think what Tick is trying to say is that, you know, you decide, you know, who you work for. And if, you, and if you've made that decision to still go back to Huey, then you made that decision. And it's not because you're just trapped in some web. Now, Tim slash Talk asks the question that I think we've all been wanting to see him ask. It's been built up for a while. We got that flashback about the rat and how that made him feel, you know, awful and all of that stuff. So he finally asks the question of why Tick killed Jimmy. Now, it turns out Tick didn't kill Jimmy. And um, a lot of it was just a misunderstanding of words. 
like Tick was mostly just thinking about Tok's feelings at the time. But then the question comes up, who the hell killed Jimmy? Like, why did that happen? I thought Tick killed Jimmy because he was scared that he's like bonds with his family. Like he was testing the bonds of his family. And that's why he did it to see if Tok would run away. Um, that was all wrong. That, that had nothing to do with it. Um, it seems to be like perhaps an extra mystery that needs to kind of be solved. Maybe Huey actually did kill the rat. Like, I think he did know about the rat. So maybe Huey did that. Like, maybe Huey is actually this master manipulator and he wanted to get Tok onto his side. Now, that would be kind of crazy. Like, really, really crazy. And that would go against what Tik is saying, saying that Tok has his own agency and that he made those choices. Well, I guess it wouldn't, like, 100% go against that. Like, it would just show that Huey had more, um, I don't know, like, uh, like he would be manipulating Tok even more than he thought he was being manipulated, um, which would be kind of horrific for Tok, obviously. Um, but yeah, I really want to know what that actually means. I might reread that scene again, but for now, I found that kind of shocking. Um, so yeah, I really want to know why Jimmy died, or if there is a why, or if it's just like some sort of like coincidental thing. Like I know this show, I mean, not this show, this book series likes coincidences, like it's a big thing for it. Um, and how, you know, miscommunication of information is also a big thing. Um, so maybe that's it, but I don't know, that feels kind of unsatisfactory in some way. So maybe I'm not inferring like the meaning behind that scene better. So yeah, we'll have to see with that one. Anyways, um, so Tok kind of goes to like the lower floor and he's looking on at all the Nebula employees at the lower level. And he's getting horrified thinking about what the Nebula Corporation and Huey are doing. So Huey also wanted like a crap ton of failed immortals. And he gets shivers just thinking about it. And he says, it's as if the thick mist was covering a gathering of something ailing and hiding it. So what that means is like when he sees like all these employees just kind of acting normal, despite them all being like immortals and stuff, um, he can't help but think like, you know, like this is just like the surface. Like there's something that's kind of buried underneath and it is really ominous and really uncomfortable and I'm not sure what it is, but it it fills him with like a real hesitation about what's coming up. And I thought that was a really good line to kind of end off this uh, this entire novel before we go into the epilogue because I think that eerie feeling um, is something that, like I think the author writes it so that we kind of hold on to it, like that eerie feeling of like what's going on? Um, but what are they planning? Why... Why have all these employees? Is this just the starting point? Is this big reveal just like literally just the starting point? Like where is this corporation going? And what is Huey trying to stop? Or what is Huey trying to start? Like what are these two forces thinking? And why are they colliding? Um, so yeah, that's a, it's a good scene to really kind of get us into the epilogue, which also goes into a lot of Huey stuff. And obviously like the next novel. So I think that was a really good end part. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that. And just really enjoyed this novel as a whole. Um, so now we're in the epilogue and we jump to the Alvier. Or Alv I still don't know how to pronounce that. But um, Isaac and Miria are talking about how um, Maria made the rain go away. And everyone's calling BS from the Martillo family. They're like, there's no way that happened. A person can't just make the rain go away. It doesn't make any sense. You know, and Pezzo, he's being like real extreme about it, saying that if he ever sees a magician, he'll swim around Manhattan. Now we get like an author's note basically saying that this would actually happen in the future. So um, now we know that a grey magician exists, right? We met him in, um, his name's Fred. We met him on the um, Flying Pussyfoot. So I'm guessing that that story revolves around him. So that would be really, really good to see. Um That'd be funny as well. I want to see that guy just have to swim all around Manhattan. That'd be hilarious. Um, but, but, so this idea of the rain going away, why did it happen? Miser picks up that it was Ronnie who did it. And Ronnie tries to avoid the question, but Miser pins him down. And it's clear that Miser already knows that Ronnie is the demon. I feel like this scene just confirms that he's the demon. There's no, like, who can make the rain appear and go away unless you're like, like, that's not the power of an immortal or a homunculus or anything like that. That's some, like, godly, godly, godly being. Um, and in this case, a demon. So I'm going to go with demon confirmed. Um, 
Yeah, uh, demon confirmed. Um, so uh, Fira comes in and is talking with Ennis, and they've decided that they're going to keep um, what they found out about the Nebula Corporation and Zillard kind of to themselves for now. Um, that they need to kind of just um, kind of work it out between themselves. Now, Isaac and Miria peep their head in, and Fero um, apologizes for knocking over the dominoes the other day, right? He wanted to see if, um, you know, hurting someone would actually make him feel good because the memories of Zillard are kind of eating away at him, and he wants to see if he has that kind of um, evilness within himself, and that's why he did that. Um, but obviously, that's a pretty um, kind of, like, he... He did ruin their dominoes. Like, it was a, you know, he did it for himself to see. So, not a good idea from Firo. Um, but turns out, Isaac and Miria, they don't even care, right? Because, you know, they're always moving from one thing to the next. They don't really care anymore. And um, what they want him to do is say, Gofun. And he says it, and it means uncle. Um, not sure what that means. I don't really understand. the. Me- I'm not going to lie. I, didn't, I never really understood the whole Gofun joke and what it meant. Maybe on a reread, I'll get it. Um, but for now, I don't really understand it. Um, anyway, um, so, yeah, and then Isaac and Miriam, they talk about how Fira was running around yelling Ennis the entire time in the rain. And he gets embarrassed. And he's like, how, the, how did you know about that? And turns out Shez said so. So, that, <laughs> so I thought that was really, really good. Just like Shez kind of popping up out of nowhere in the story and just kind of creating mischief for Fira as any good little brother would do, right? Um, yeah, no, that was, that was great. That was a really good line. And it comes to Ennis's attention that she did the same. She ran in the rain and always wanted to find Fira. So someone asks her, what is Fira to you? And she says that he is her precious family. And she answered this from the bottom of her heart. So what does that mean? Um, I don't know. But, um, but I do like that she's back to kind of questioning... What is like? What's my relationship with Fira? Um, I think that's a good way for her to kind of go. Um, so yeah, I think that's. I think this scene is actually more optimistic for Fira and his, you know, him wanting a relationship with Ennis in the future. So yeah, this was a good scene. It was really funny. I, I thought that scene. I mean, I thought that line that um that Shez was the one who basically, you know, like told Isaac and Mira about like Fira running in the rain yelling Ennis. Um, I thought that was hilarious. I don't know why. It just, it just shares like barely in the story and they're popping out of nowhere and then just causing fear or some grief. It's just, it's just funny. Now the next scene, we go to Dallas, my favorite, and he's waking up. He's in a daze and Eve is crying in front of him and he doesn't want her to cry for him. When he realizes that she is, he feels bad and it's implied that he cries at the end. Also, he's in like luxurious, like luxurious sheets, and he thinks that he's no good for them. And I think it's implied heavily that Dallas tends to act out in like his murderous ways and so many other ways from a place of like self hatred. Like he hates himself; he doesn't see himself as worthy of anything valuable. Um, so to see these luxurious sheets around him, he's like, "I don't deserve this." To see Eve crying for him, he's like, "I don't deserve this." So he does have like a lot of self hatred. Maybe if he, you know, I don't know, worked on making himself love himself a bit more, he could also transfer that to loving other people as well because he wouldn't be acting from a place of hating himself. He would be acting from a different place. Um, Though, I mean, so far this novel has shown that Dallas isn't really one to, like, kind of change or develop. Um, I mean, I want to kind of stay optimistic because I do like his relationship with Eve, um, but that's all I like. (laughs) And I like how much Eve cares about him um, because I like Eve. So, yeah, I'm not sure where their characters are going for now, um, but I'm keen to see where they go. So now we jump over to Christopher and he's talking probably with Chi and he finds out that Tim is getting the blame from Huey and that Adele is probably with Fred the Magician. So she's getting like patched up by a, you know, a doctor. I mean, he's a magician, but he's also a doctor. Um, and Tim's getting the blame for everything going awry. Um, so Tim did say he was going to take the blame, so that is what's happening right now. Um, and we find out that it's the second time that Christopher has ever lost. So the first time was someone who had the name of a river. Um, maybe this gets translated to something from the Japanese, or I don't know. I don't know who this is. Um, and he's the one who gave him the shark teeth. So does that mean someone like punched him so much in the mouth that he's teeth ended up becoming like shark-like 
like they broke over like they broke in like a sharp way um it's not like he uses his teeth to fight or anything like that so they're not going to be like sharp um they're just they're just jagged teeth um which could happen if someone punches him um i mean punches him in a very unique way but punches him regardless anyway um so christopher goes to that flower that he found before the one where he was like admiring it and looking at it and really appreciating like its beauty um and he found an agent there right and he like quote unquote kills him um but turns out the guy didn't die and he stabs christopher in the back now once he gets stabbed you know we know christopher's strong he proceeds to stab the agent over and over and over and as he's doing this he's looking at the blood on the guy and his own and he says that subjectivity is just such a funny thing even though we're the same but then when the tip of the blade kind of breaks he thinks maybe we're a little bit different i'm not that fragile so i think what he's trying to first kind of come to terms with or trying to understand is this idea of things being subjective and subjective in the sense of like me having my own subjective point of view or how i see things or how i am um and then the idea of us all being the same which would be not having subjectivity so i guess in this scene he's kind of doubling down on his perspective that you know i am different from others um i am subjectively different um you know the blade broke i'm not that fragile i'm not going to just die but the thing is in the next scene there's a complete counter to that i mean not the next scene but like right after so christopher's actually about to die from the stab he's lying down and then he's thinking well what's the difference even i live in a unusual way right i am different in that way from many people but even when i'm dying i don't want like i don't want to die so what's the difference i'm just like all my victims he's asking what the difference between himself and others are and even if he's born unnatural it seems like at the end point of it all it's all just the same and maybe that's what he needs to believe kind of deep down um so i thought that was really interesting that we're kind of exploring this idea of like what it actually means to have a subjective kind of perspective of yourself and allowing yourself to be different allowing yourself to be subjective and then seeing the similarities between yourself and others and going what well, does my subjectivity even matter does the fact that i was born unnatural even matter does the are the key things that make me different from other people does it even matter if at death's door i'm just like them and i'm thinking well i don't want to die is there any difference um and i think that's what he's kind of contending with and i don't know if there's any real like answer to this i mean i can't think of any um but yeah as he's about to die someone shows up so we know that christopher is going to survive um i think it would be a waste to waste his character if he just got stabbed by the agent so obviously he was going to survive um because he's a really good character i think um uh, but yeah very very good scene very good kind of end wrap up to his character for now um really kind of him getting in touch with his yeah with his um self concept of um what's natural and how he's unnatural and how that unnaturalness makes him different but at the end of the day it also kind of makes him the same it's it's very interesting um yeah it was a really good scene so in the next scene we have an interesting kind of interaction between Tim and Huey um Sham is there as well so one of the twins and he's relaying like Huey's thoughts like you get the impression that it's kind of coming out of like like Sham is basically articulating what Huey is trying to respond to Tim with um so Tim asks a very pressing question if he killed Jimmy if Huey killed Jimmy he knows that his brother didn't do it right Tick already told him that he knows that his father wouldn't do it so the only other person who knew about Jimmy that rat was Huey so now he wants to know if he did it and um Huey's kind of like well he kind of gives he says like if that's your world then that's what it is um and i think that response is basically well if that's what you choose to believe then that's how you'll see it um and tim comes from this thinking that he won't be a butterfly or a spider so he won't be the butterfly that's caught in the spider's web and he won't be like the predator that's also like manipulating and controlling other people he's not going to control others and he's not going to be controlled just in order to get that world that he wants the world he does so like he so desires he'll do absolutely everything and because of this 
Huey thinks he's grown. Because despite Tim doubting Huey, Tim still pledges loyalty towards him. And because of that, Huey sees that as genuine growth. And I guess what this means is before, Huey only thought Tim would pledge loyalty by being, I don't know, ignorant in some way. Um, but now Huey knows that like Tim will pledge loyalty even feeling a sense of hesitation. Um, so I guess what that's how Huey sees um, Tim like growing as a person. Um, so the scene initially made me think, well, maybe Huey did kill him and he's just kind of, um, you know, just kind of being like, eh, if that's what you choose to believe, then just believe it. But I think perhaps in this scene, Huey is genuinely kind of like, yes, like Tim grew as a person. This is important. Um, so I think this is actually a genuine moment, perhaps between them. Um, well, not from Tim's end, but from Huey actually acknowledging Tim perhaps as his own kind of autonomous person, um, or like Tim exceeding the expectation that Huey actually had for him. So this might overall be a good thing as far as their relationship is concerned for the future, but it depends on how Huey's character turns out, because if Huey is just like a crazy person who's evil, um, which I highly doubt that's the case. I mean, there's a lot of nutbags in this series, but I really don't think Huey's going to be crazy like he might be misunderstood or perhaps thinking he's good but he's kind of doing something wrong or something like that but I think this moment is actually kind of genuine I think Huey is actually looking at Tim's growth and thinking hey he actually grew so now we jump over to Maria and Tick and Maria is just talking about her recent achievement you know she won the fight she split the skies, she did everything. And she's really talking about how she, like, split the skies. And the rest of the Gandalf family are praising her. But are also like, like, what the hell? Like, what do you mean you split the skies? That sounds kind of crazy. So the exact same, like, response that, um, like, the Martillo family are giving um, to Isaac and Miriam when they talk about it. So, you know, this makes a lot of sense. And then Luck calls for them. And Tick's already in the office. I think he's, like, sitting down or something. And Maria thinks that she's about to be thanked for her effort and victory, but Luck is annoyed. He had to hear from Claire and Ronnie that as far as the task that Tick and Maria actually had to do was concerned, the outcome was kind of out of his hands. Like, they didn't actually accomplish the outcome, which was to actually deal with Jacuzzi's gang in some way. Now, Jacuzzi's gang is, like, affiliated with the Martillos now. And they're giving, like, payments and things like that. So Ronnie got to them first. The Martillo got the Martillo family got to them first. Um, so yeah, Lucky's really annoyed, and he basically chews them out for like an entire hour. Um, it's a good scene. Um, I really like their dynamic, like especially like Luck and um, Luck and Maria's dynamic because she's always being crazy and Luck can't control her. It's it's a good one. Um, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense that Luck would be pissed at the end. Now, as a punishment, Tick and Maria need to go to the Daily Days to, like, give information. Um, that's how they're going to make up for their blunder. Now, Maria is sad again um, because, you know, she just got chewed out. She was super happy. She was telling her story about her victory. But Luck chewed her out, and now she's kind of down. Um, but then she asks Tick about Tim. Now, Tim says something really interesting. He kind of reflects on the fact that when he saw him, he didn't even cry. And I think this is really key and is something really core to his character. And we'll explore that really soon. Now, Tox, he says that Tox's impressive because he's focused on things that you can't see. And so is Maria. That's what's interesting, I guess, about Maria for Tick as well. That she's focused on something that she can't actually see. Like the, you know, like the bond between herself and her blade. Like, yeah, like there's a blade in her arm, right? But it's more than that. It's, um, she says it's a companionship that she has with that blade. You can't really see that with your eyes. It's not physical. You can't hold it. Tick says that all he's done is test bonds and destroy them. And then he says that he might not be able to have a bond with anybody for as long as he lives. Now, I just want to kind of look into that idea of him testing bonds and destroying them. So previously, I thought that he was, um, like, through his torture, right? Like, every time he'd, like, stab them, he was kind of testing something intangible. Like, he was testing, like, the the amount this person would actually um, take in order to, like, give up a loved one or something like that. 
and that he was kind of consistently kind of checking to see when that intangible bond kind of breaks. But that obviously doesn't make sense because he's someone who only sees what's real, what's before him, something only he can see. And if he can't see it, he doesn't trust it. Um, So I think his relationship with torture isn't like one where he's like testing the bonds every time he stabs someone. It's kind of like he's just, you know, he's stabbing them, he's stabbing them, he's cutting them up and he's like, okay, they still haven't given up yet. So I guess they're attached to their loved one. They're attached to their loved one. They're attached to their loved one. And then eventually they break and he's like, okay, so they're no longer attached. Like there's not like a clean kind of experience where he's able to kind of hold on to this idea that um, even even when they do give up, that there's still like an attachment or a bond that's happening. Or even if the, um, you know, even if their will is progressively waning as they're getting tortured, that there is actually like a bond that's perhaps like increasing in strength and decreasing with each stab. Like obviously at the end, it's like decreasing because they eventually give up. But he doesn't see the bond itself as something seamless and something that's always ebbing and flowing and something that's always existing. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't believe it because he can't actually see it. And I think this is also why he's kind of like, wow, like, when I looked at Tim, I didn't even cry. Like, like he's just, like, thinking about that. Um, because he needs, like, physical proof that he cares about someone or something. Like, if he doesn't see the fact that tears didn't run down his face, he's like, well, you know, what, what does that mean, Right. Like you need to, like you have, you have to have like physical tears coming down your face to actually see that there's a genuine bond between you and someone. You actually don't need to do that. Um, him and his brother obviously and very clearly have a bond, a very specific bond. Uh, but I don't think he actually trusts that a bond actually exists. Um, so even though he didn't try to like kill his um, like kill his pet rat to see if like Tim would leave him or something like that, I don't think. That's what's like we already like clarified that he didn't um like kill his rat, so that's off the table, right? But the but I think the main thing is that like despite that whole scene, right? That that whole scene is basically irrelevant kind of to Tick's character, as far as we know. I think Tick, what Tick is really about is actually perhaps learning to trust things that are kind of intangible. Like maybe that's where his um character's kind of going. And instead of just trusting things that he, like, sees with his eyes, like, in order to actually confirm that a bond actually exists, he has to see that tears are falling down his eyes. He's like, well, you know, he's my brother and I haven't seen him in a long time. Therefore, if tears don't roll down my eyes, do I actually care about this bond? Like, it's very logical and it's very, like, um, you know, like, it's very, like, uh, like, if I don't see it, is it even there kind of thing? And then I think this is where, like, Maria kind of, like, shines through. Um, she says that, well, she she looks at him when he says, um, I might not be able to have a bond with anybody for as long as I live. And she looks at him and says that they've been linked since forever. You know, whether they're amigos or novios, which means friends or lovers, um, that lovers part made me go, whoa, wait a sec. Like, I mean, I, I shipped them, but I didn't know, you know, like... I would be able to, like, I didn't know the ship was actually sailing already. Um, so then she says this, and, you know, it's because he can't believe it because he can't see it. And then she's like, well, in that case, let's make it visible. Let's, you know, let's prove it in in the real world. And the best way you can actually show a bond, or the most typical way when you show, like, you know, two people kind of forming a connection is, like, two hands coming together. So that's why she kind of, like, grabs his hands and then runs. Now, Tick is embarrassed by this sentiment. And the fact that Tick is actually embarrassed means that he, you know, he senses, you know, the tension. He senses the bond. Like, he wouldn't feel embarrassed if he didn't actually sense the bond, right? Um, So he runs too. And this time, as an actual coincidence, Maria pokes her sword into the sky and the autumn sky peeks through once again. So the clouds part. But this time, it's actually a coincidence. And we get, like, a really nice picture of these two, like, holding hands and the skies, like, parting. It's a really, really good way to, like, end the novel or, like, end the story. Like, there's still more of the novel itself that has to come. But this was a really, really good, like, last kind of scene to end this section of the story off. I really, really enjoyed this one. Uh, Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite novels. All right, now we begin the prologue for the next volume. Okay, so we check on Huey, finally, and he's talking to someone at Alcatraz, 
and we find out it's Ronnie. So Ronnie like materializes himself fully and Ronnie and Huey have like a really interesting conversation. And it's implied that while Ronnie is a demon, he might even be like something else. Um, so anyway, like Ronnie wants to know Huey's objective. And Huey says, you can just read my mind. So like, why don't you just do that? But Ronnie basically states that that wouldn't be any fun. So you really get the feeling of like a demon playing games kind of vibe from this. Now, Huey explains like the recent incident with Nebula and how him it gave him like interesting subjects like Dallas Genoard and he got to know Tim's rebellious attitude. So he did see that as a good thing, I think. He's also like curious if the Nebula Corporation can actually hold everything together, especially with 1,200 employees knowing they are immortals. Like that's bound to create like a lot of chaos. Now, these are the people he considers to be upsets. Claire Stanfield, so the former Felix Walken, um, and Ronnie. So it's interesting that these two characters are the ones he considers to be upsets. Um, Ronnie um, makes sense, I guess, but like with Claire, you know, he's with Chane, like him being an upset is a very interesting idea. Like Huey already immediately doesn't like him, which I think is funny. Um, one other thing that Huey says is interesting is that there's no past, present or future here that the flow of time forms like a whirlpool. So we're getting a hint into his objective, and basically what he's interested in is the potential for immortals. And he believes that humans are kind of limited, right? Now, Ronnie says that he shouldn't underestimate humans. Now, lastly, Ronnie explains that there will be someone unexpected who's coming along to Alcatraz named Lad Russo, and he's after him, and luckily for him, he won't be bored. So this was a really interesting scene, just getting a little bit from Huey. I mean, before he wouldn't really say much, we barely knew anything about him. We wouldn't get to see, like we would barely get any kind of dialogue from him. And now we're getting a bunch with this prologue. Um, so yeah, it's really, really good. I'm really interested to see like what he, like just more about his character because he's been hyped so much. Um, and having Ronnie be the person he's having a conversation with is really interesting. Um it really shows just how big of a deal this guy is that a demon would actually go out of his way to kind of, you know, have a conversation with him in the prison where he's at. So, yeah, I thought that was a pretty big deal. I really enjoyed it. Now, this next scene I personally loved. So a child comes out of nowhere and she's talking to Huey. She has black hair and gold eyes, you know, which is signatures of Huey and Chane. And turns out it's Lisa. And she's actually a daughter of Huey. But she's a child though, and her voice is like very different to the voice that she's talking with um, with Christopher and stuff. Also, she refers to Chane as like big sister. And interestingly, Lisa says that she fought Chane and she's confident that she could kill her. Huey's not disappointed, but like forward and says that she shouldn't try to kill her sister just yet. So that's kind of screwed up. Um, Huey doesn't really care if Chane dies, so that's not good. Um, maybe, I guess, China is being manipulated by Huey, um, or is Lisa currently being manipulated by Huey? Um, also, Huey, stop manipulating people. Um, but yeah, now Lisa almost cries after um, Huey says, you know, don't do this. But then Huey makes her feel better by saying he's not angry at her, and he prefers Lisa over China anyway. And this makes Lisa happy, but she doesn't notice just how mechanical Huey is being. He's just saying things like a robot. In fact, even as he says this, he's looking away, like as he says his last line. So he's, you know, he's not, a, he's barely a parent. He's very much a mad scientist. He's just kind of doing the, you know, he's playing the game. He's manipulating this kid. He's probably manipulating China as well. Um, these characters are going to be not black and white, but they're going to be shades of gray. There's going to be good aspects of them and bad aspects of them. So I think this is pretty interesting. Um, Definitely, like, Lisa and China are going to have a confrontation even more so in, like, the next novels. So that's going to be really cool as well, especially with her being able to, like, pop up in the prison. So that's going to be a big, big deal. And she can, you know, materialize herself as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that was good. We get, like, a really fascinating line. It says, like, as usual, alone a mortal continued to deceive all of creation. All the lab animals involved with him, all the natural world and even himself. Um, so the lab animals involved with him would be anyone he's willing to do an experiment on, 
all the natural world, so literally the world that he's a part of, um, and even himself. So he's deceiving himself as well. So he's probably not going on the right trajectory, but he's probably making an attempt, right? Um, and now he thinks back to something Alma said, that the world is full of only love and justice, that in order for everyone in the world to like smile, that's a really hard thing to do when justices are always clashing, right? It's almost like love and justice are on opposite ends. So you have to become the world's lone evil and visibly commit fouls big enough to outmaneuver justices. Um, I don't really fully understand what he means by that. Um, I get that everyone has their own sense of justice and how that can create conflict and creating a world that's really like full of smiles is such a hard thing to do when everyone's like sense of justice is always clashing. So instead of, I guess, trying to be the most just person, then perhaps being the world's most evil person is the um, the best thing that you can do because then it's clear that there is a, a villain that exists that everyone kind of put their where everyone can actually put all of their energy towards defeating. Maybe that's what he wants to do. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but that was a really good line. Keen to see what that actually even means. Um, and then he thinks that, does Elma think what he's doing to be ridiculous? Um, so that's a really good line as well. Really like that he has a dynamic with Elma. They're so different. Um, and Elma's kind of like the thing. Like the fact that he's connected with Elma gives me hope that he's definitely, like, a good kind of person. Like, general, for the most part, kind of a good person. Like, yeah, he might be, like, rough around the edges, but it's just, he's just kind of, like, a bit naive, like Alma is. Like, their connection, like, their connection is the thing that kind of shines through and shows, like, Huey's humanity. Um, but, yeah, all of that is just speculation. Now, this is the last scene of the novel. So we jump to Chi, and he's trying to assassinate someone. Now, this person he's trying to assassinate offers Chi money. And Chi's like, no, I'm just going to do my job. And he goes in for the attack. But then suddenly the victim acts like confident. And Chi ends up getting shot by a sniper. And then the shadow like passes over him and he gets pinned down. Now, turns out the shadow is Felix Walken. So finally, we're going to see this guy. The guy who um, Claire took his name from. You know, he seems to be like the number two hitman in the world. Or perhaps number one for some people. And then Spiker's, I mean, the sniper's name was Spike. And I think this is the same guy who worked for Goose or something. Like, his name was Spike as well, like the sniping guy. But I thought he was, like, clear, killed by Claire. Anyway, like, Senator Barium, who is the victim, um, but now he's, like, in control and, you know, he's, he's like, he feels very powerful now, um, thinks about who sent Chi over to kind of kill him. He doesn't consider Huey because he knows Huey wouldn't be so spineless to do that. So he thinks perhaps it's Homer. I don't know who Homer is. Definitely a new character to look out for. Then he says, Huey Lafaray and Victor Talbot, the remaining immortals. He says that by giving up their tether to humanity, they didn't gain anything. They only discarded death. They didn't get anything tangible like money. Now, as he's thinking this, his daughter kind of comes in and he plays the father role. But as he's doing this, he's kind of continuing that monologue. And he's thinking how, like, he won't let the immortals make the world their playthings. He wants to show them the power of humanity, the power of society, the power of money. So those things are fully intertwined in his mind. So humanity, society, and money. They're fully a, a... It's all human, right? And what it means to have death leering on the neck of everyone. That's what he wants to show. Now, I thought that was a fantastic line for Senator Barium. Like, yeah, he's just, like, a senator and whatever. But to see him trying to basically give, like, the middle finger to all of the immortals and be like, hey, like, this is what it means to always be thinking about death. Like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you what it means to be human. Like, that's, like, I think this, I think it's going to be shaping up to be, like, a really, really good character. Like, a super cunning kind of businessman who just wants to, like, prove, you know, prove the the power, like, specifically the power that humanity holds. Um, yeah, I thought that was, like, a great fucking line. So I'm really looking forward to seeing, like, Senator Barium in the next novel, Huey in the next novel, Lad in the next novel. Um, but yeah, yeah, just really looking forward to seeing, yeah, the next novel. Um, but yeah, as for this novel, it was really, really good. Um, 
I really enjoyed this one. I think it's my second favorite so far. So, like, if I had to rank them, I think the fifth novel is still my favorite. This one's also really, really good. There's just something about the fifth novel that, like, vibes with me more. Um, I don't know. It's just the atmosphere, like, the whole village and then the reveals and... I don't know. Like, I really do like both of these, like, a lot. But for now, I'm going to be, like, novel five is number one. Uh, novel seven, so this one, is number two. Then novel four is number three. And then novel three, um, so the railroad one, is number four. Then volume one is number five. Then volume two. And then I think lastly, volume six for me, for now. Um, yeah, yeah. So those are my rankings. Like I said, this volume was really, really good. Um, yeah, keen to see what happens next. And thank you all for listening. All right.